Imagine for a moment it's 2007. Let's take Dave, a retired school teacher who walks into a bank with sparkling eyes and hope for the future. He's there to invest his whole life savings. The bank assures him that the housing market is rock solid. You can't lose is what they even say. The number of times I heard that sentence, the market for housing is rock solid. (laughs) But Dave's story is sadly not unique. And he paints a stark picture of how the blind spots in our financial system can impact everyday people. But what if there was a warning, a hint of a storm that was coming? Today, we dive into The Big Short, a book that reveals the crack long before they became the chasms, and ask the burning question, have we really learned our lesson? If you're not already, hold on to your seats because we're about to embark on a journey that combines financial intrigue with human drama, asking the tough questions about our society's memory and resilience. Welcome back, dear listeners, to another episode, of course, of the Needle Movers podcast. I'm Mark Jasons. And I am Valerio Tommaso. And we are riveting discussion ahead, so let's jump right into it. Okay, let's start with a summary of The Big Short. For our listeners who might not have read The Big Short, the full name is The Big Short Inside the Doomsday Machine by Michael Lewis. Or you somehow missed the film, uh, which is based on the book, just called The Big Short. And it was, I think, in 2015. It b- Basically, both of them brilliantly documents the events leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. And let me tell you something. This is probably like one of the few movies that I've actually had to watch two or three times to fully understand and comprehend. So it's probably not the the most straightforward thing in the world, however, so educational in some way. And it was an era marked by reckless subprime lending, colossal investment banks betting against their own junk product, and an unregulated swap of derivatives. I guess what stuck me the most was how the author gave us a window into the minds of few who managed to actually foresee the storm coming. These were outsiders, so non-conformists who went against the grain and bet against the housing market, which I, I know we're talking about 2008 and I feel sorry for Dave who we talked about in the intro, but we're in 2023 and it feels like <laughs> there's someone out there making a lot of money right now too. And it's always the case, right? And we look at people that go against the wave and we think of them as the, oh, those are the doomsday people. They're people that are trying to like get on the news or maybe the people that are trying to uh, get five five minutes of fame and probably in a way when those guys were speaking way back then in 2007, Many people thought that they were crazy. Uh, but now looking back, of course, we know that they were right and everyone else was wrong. And, you know, when we talk about everyone else, probably 99.5% of the people that uh, were involved at the time. And while they profited massively, it wasn't a celebratory win. There is a profound sadness in understanding the systematic corruption and the sheer blindness of major financial institutions. The Big Shot is really a story about people. It's a story about greed, ambition, denial, and these human factors played a massive role in the 2008 crisis. I think that's exemplified in the movie pretty well. And the traders who bundled toxic loans, the rating agencies that stamped them with AAA ratings, the executives who turned a blind eye. It's like a cascade of human decisions or indecisions that built up to the inevitable crash. So let me translate this for a second. This is literally taking poo, diarrhea, and something else which is really nasty 
packaging it all up and saying, hey, man, I'm going to sell you like the best sandwich in the world. This is literally what happened in the financial crisis. Too good to be true, right? Too good to be true. Mm. And that's what Marx means with the AAA rating. So they've literally taken junk and given it AAA ratings and, and sold it to people. And all these executives were, start, were turning a blind eye, which is disgusting in a way. And it's a lesson on the limits of regulations. You can't legislate morality or ethical behavior. And the hope is that by shining a light on these issues, as the Big Short did, it fosters a culture of accountability and introspection in the finan- in the finance world. And it's really interesting because um, when I went into industry for the first time as an intern, one of the very interesting things is that there was corporate training being rolled out. And uh, one of the topics that um, that was being covered quite significantly was around the topic of um, honesty and integrity. And how do you react to specific situations should they arise? So it certainly had an impact moving forward. I think it's also about remembering that human factors don't just stop at the people in the businesses, like the executives and the uh, people who get the rating agencies who give the AAA rating. It's not just about pointing fingers at Wall Street. The general public too, which includes me and you, <laughs> and other, uh, well, maybe less us, less then, but still, if it was to happen now, that we're drawn into the allure of easy loans and the dream home ownership, right? I think if you think now to the fact that we're in the UK and as we see interest rates rising and people are complaining about the fact that, hey, I don't think I can keep up with this payments now. It's like, at what point did we question, educate ourselves and not take the financial quote unquote truths at face value. Like you sign up to something because it seems like a win when all forecasts say for now. (laughs) It's it's really interesting you mentioned that, right? Because uh, I think it was less than a year ago, I renewed my mortgage. And I remember very, very, very clearly that when my mortgage advisor sent me the paperwork for, uh, for for my loan, there was one uh, there was one box and it was in bold and it said, can you afford to repay your mortgage? And I was thinking in my head, yeah, because otherwise the mortgage wouldn't be given to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, uh, in, in that same, uh, very same box, uh, there was a scenarios in there. Would you be able to repay the mortgage if the interest rate went up to 3%, 4%, 5%, 6%? And it was really interesting because I was looking at it. I was like, oh, that's bonkers. Like, you know, when is the interest rate going to be going to 6 7 or 8%? Lo and behold, <laughs> what's the what's the current interest rate? About 6%. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. okay, firstly, I'm incredibly lucky that I re- renew my mortgage when I'd renewed it. Incredibly lucky. But I'm also thinking about the hundreds of thousands of people that were not as lucky as me in the sense that the mortgage renewal didn't happen three weeks before the interest rate went up. And they found themselves in a situation where a, they may have been hoping that maybe the interest rate would drop again so they kind of hang in there with a variable rate. And B, then got stuck with some really, really expensive rates which are really affected the livelihood. Yeah. And post-2008, the world didn't just shrug and move on. There was major reforms that took place, like the Dodd-Frank Act in the US. Ah, yeah. Dodd-Frank was aimed to reduce risks in the financial system. 
This included things like protecting consumers with rules that prevented predatory loan practices and reducing the chances of a future bank bailout by taxpayers. And it wasn't just the US taking measures. Across the pond, as so we call it, the UK introduced the Banking Act of 2009. This act was significant because it aimed to improve financial stability by giving authorities the tools that they needed to deal with failing banks. Yeah, so the Banking Act allowed the Bank of England to intervene and stabilize a bank or building society that was on the verge of collapse. This was crucial because it helped maintain public trust in the banking system and ensure that any failures wouldn't cascade into a broader crisis, which is funny when I think of the context, maintain public trust after a bubble is just burst. <laughs> it's like regain, if I if I think of it more. And this is probably where the term too big to fail comes in because, you know, those, those institutions, they're huge and they hold people's money. They hold people's livelihood. At the end of the day, you know, I, I bank with, uh, with Lloyds Bank. I don't know who you bank with. But I put my savings in there because, you know, it was the only bank account when I moved to the UK that didn't charge me to open up a bank account. But if Lloyds was to fail in five to 10 years time and my savings aren't there, you know, that that's a huge risk to my livelihood. And mm-hmm. uh, putting something in there to make sure that those uh, big giants don't fail and people don't suffer the repercussions is important. So additionally to what we just said, the, U- the UK saw the, establish- saw the establishment of the Financial Policy Committee within the Bank of England. So this committee's role is to identify, monitor, and take actions to remove or reduce systematic risks in the financial system. These reforms in both the US and the UK, along with many other that were global, were steps towards a more resilient financial system. However, as with any reform, the effectiveness and implications are often debated. And while these regulations were steps in the right directions, and you know, some critics argued that they didn't go far enough, and probably some critics may be right, there, there is a balance of strike between regulations and innovation, and not everyone agrees to where the line should be drawn. And then there's the global factor, right? Financial markets are intertwined across nations, so not just in the UK and US. And while the US took steps, the effectiveness of reforms truly depends on a collaborative worldwide effort. One person can't really lead it. It needs the contributions from the others as well. So I'm going to take you back just to the beginning. So we spoke about Dave's story. And it's interesting because, you know, it's it's this fictional hint or fictional window in somebody's life. And it's interesting because I remember in 2007, I started university, now giving away my age here. And I was in, uh, I think, either my first or second meeting with my personal tutor. And I remember my personal tutor making this uh, kind of a half joke. And he said, at this point in time, you're really lucky. You may want to consider doing a master's and a PhD. And I was like, the hell? I'm here to do a bachelor. And then he carries on and says, you know, there's a lot of people that graduated last year with high hopes for a job in engineering, because that was the uh, degree that I was doing. And now they're finding themselves unemployed because every single company out there is either making people redundant or shrinking the job market massively. And that's when it really hit me, right? Because I wasn't being impacted directly. And in some way, he was he was right. I was really lucky that uh, I wasn't in the job market at that point in time. However, I put myself in the shoes of the people that I had graduated the year before. And I was thinking, shit, like he's right. Think about like spending so much money for your education. Then you come out of it and 
if you're lucky, you might get a job as a waiter because the job market is so crap at the moment and you really have to re-sacrifice everything else again just to keep afloat. It's funny because when I was in university and this was going on, I was luckily before it. So, well, lucky or unlucky. And I'm sure there was rich people in uni who were getting impacted by it. For me, this was just noise. And I was like, well, I've just started. So <laughs> I have some time to figure out what the landscape looks like once I graduate. But I was hearing the same things where it was like, you might as well stay in education as long as you can until this, uh, <laughs> this tide rolls over and it. We'll see if this crisis is still in play. And what do we talk about this, right? Because until now, we've talked about system regulations. And I think it's good to give that background and insight because it's really crucial and it's at the heart of the big short. And that brings us to the critical point where, you know, financial education is important. And if the big short taught us anything, is that the value of understanding what's going on beneath the surface is truly important. Basic financial literacy is still not even standard in many educational systems. I know I wasn't taught it, right? We got maths and they were like, now extrapolate, use that wherever. (laughs) Which is surprising given how money and finances dictate so much of our lives. Like it's beyond, you know how they say cash rules, actually, this is a Wu-Tang quote, cash rules everything around me, cream, get the money. (laughs) But I was going to say like money is the root of all evil and like money drives so many factors. And yet we're not including that in just our standard educational systems. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I was, again, probably lucky because I had something called consumer economics in my, I think, final year of high school, which taught me about uh, loans, credit cards, and uh, a consumer tips, which retrospectively, when I was looking at it, I was thinking that this is such a huge waste of time. But I think it gave me some sort of a level of uh, being a consumer and understanding what loans mean and what it means to repay them, what it means to spend your savings, et cetera, uh, that has actually placed me in a better position going into university. I'd also ask the question to you and to the audience. Have you had a lot of friends who've had to ask you for guidance when it comes to like financial situation because they weren't taught this? Because for me, it's very apparent when, especially if it comes to maybe houses or when it comes to um, just uh, strong financial decisions where I get this question just because I've been through it rather than because they've been taught it. And so it's like, there, there's an, there's obviously a gap there where things can be and done be-, be better and be done better. In fact, uh, prior to this episode starting, I was saying, oh, what's this email from? And uh, Val was able to answer because when we graduated university, I recall getting a financial advisor, which was like one of the rarest things people did. <laughs> and then I introduced it to multiple friends of mine. And funnily enough, that same advisor was at my brother's wedding the other day. And he bumps into another friend of mine who he happened to advise. So I'd managed to like get a number of people engaged in it. But that made them, I feel like, past university, when everyone's graduated going into adulthood was when the point where we were trying to all get on our financial literacy and educate ourselves because up until that point, once we've already taken out massive loans to complete our degrees is when we're like, so how are we supposed to manage our money? And and on that question that you just asked around whether people have come to to me and asked me about finances or financial advice or, you know, obviously I didn't didn't charge people. But I find that interesting, right? Because I I think finances are quite a personal topic. And I don't think there is that many people in in this country, the UK, that um, openly share uh, finances or are openly um, putting themselves out there as not knowing much or uh, being doubtful about one topic or the other. 
Um, the only few times where I've had people ask me for advice or come to me and ask me what I've done was from really personal friends. And it was just to cross reference that what they were doing was actually correct or not. Um, so it's interesting because we haven't got the education, but at the same time, we don't openly talk about it. And it's a bit the same thing about the uh, salaries, right? So you work for a company um, and we're all very secretive around what everyone earns. Although if you do a little bit of a search online and go on to, I don't know, Fishbowl or Glassdoor, you can easily find how much everyone else gets paid. But we're really secretive around, oh yeah, I don't really want to tell you. Whereas if we actually spoke about it and made it an open topic, we could actually educate ourselves more so that we are in a position to bargain more when it comes to getting new contracts or when it comes to getting a promotion, etc. It's a, it's a very interesting space, but I'm not sure if it's a UK specific issue. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? I don't think it's a UK specific issue. I do know of some colleagues who are very open and sharing their salary. In fact, I feel like they do it to like get mine out of me, but I've had a number of colleagues who are very open to share their like salaries. And I feel like it gives power back to the people rather than the companies they work for, especially when you do that. Because at one point, you don't know if they're taking the absolute piss out of your life with what <laughs> salary they're paying you. And also there's a lot of uh, unconscious biases and discriminations in the workplace that you might not be aware of. But you hear about it when it comes to celebrities, actors and actresses when they're saying, hey, I don't want to do this movie because my colleague or peer is getting paid extreme 10x my salary and I'm feel more famous than them anyway. I should be commanding more money. But when it comes to our own jobs and our own workplaces, we get to know about minimum wage and then weirdly enough, you don't know the wages within your field that kind of can impact but again it's down to like you said it's very private and personal and i feel like that's worked in people's favors uh be it both ways as an individual you get to keep yourself to yourself you could be very affluent and no one needs to know or you could be very um struggling and that doesn't need to be the case but the company is able to pay you less and i've seen that most of the time where my peers get paid even less than me or extremely higher than me and if not for that candid conversation where i'm like when the company says they can't afford to pay me this, they're just saying rubbish. <laughs> they're just saying nonsense. But that's like one, I feel like one slice of the financial literacy pie, right? The financial education pie. There are so many aspects of it. And that's just in terms of when you work, let alone what you do with your money. And then if you go in and a bank tells you it's rock solid, that's wild. You don't think it's wild because nothing has taught you prior to the, I feel like the big short that if a bank tells you this is rock solid, that should be a red flag. Like, yo, you should be speculative. Everything is speculative. Even when it comes to the rates when buying houses, if you've bought one or if you're looking to buy one, just so you know, even though interest rates are rising, the speculation is that they might fall. It is not the guarantee. There is nothing guaranteed, you know, and it, all things are uh, temporary and we wait and see and we hope. And then so when we're taking our remortgages, I feel like at that time, Rao, you must have done the same thing where it's like, two or five years or maybe longer. I feel like this is the time frame. This is good. I like the rate I'm getting now. I dislike the rate I'm getting now. All based on speculation, nothing based on certainty. Yeah, 100%. And uh, that's that's when you look at those uh, boxes in, uh, in your contract and look at them and say, okay, would I be able to, to afford this if uh, this went up and that went up? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's interesting, right? And and I, and I think part a part of it has been rectified. Um, I don't think anyone li- in the UK legally, no one can tell you for a certainty that something is rock solid or they can't tell you that you will make X guaranteed. They will always give you scenarios. And I remember that when we used to go to our um, f- to our financial advisors, they used to look at, uh, at, they used to give us figures and they used to say, okay, with this level of uh, risk, 
this is something that this is a scenario that we saw in the past five years. With this level of risk, this is the scenario that we see in the past five years. So you are almost told this is the data. Make up your own interpretation, which is really mm-hmm. interesting. Um, but I, I think going back to the to what we're talking about financial education, th- there's definitely been a push post 2008 to include more financial education in the school curricula. But I think it's still quite far from where it needs to be. And many people still find finance daunting and they try to avoid it, leading to uninformed decisions making and also a little bit of a panic when it comes to making those decisions around loans, mortgages, and which then lead to making the wrong decisions. I would say that the beauty of today is there is still a plethora of resources available. So there are the online courses, seminars, podcasts like ours, um, and don't forget YouTube, where you can just access for free if you're fine with ads, <laughs> all aimed at demystifying finance. It's on us to seek out that knowledge personally. And like I'm always saying in our podcast, we're here to raise your awareness of it. But there are a number of avenues now, both free and paid, where you can at least educate yourself, even if right now the uh, the school system doesn't yet do it. And it's not just about the personal gain, right? It's an informed public and hold the institutions accountable and demand better practices and hopefully prevent another crisis fueled by blind trust, which is practically what happened. We believe that the banks were or had the best interest in, in, in their hearts and that really didn't happen. That trust was misplaced hugely. So one thing I want to go into, which... It's part of financial education, I'd say. And I remember you told me that you was um, aware of the confusion in the movie, but which, why you, I'm guessing you watched it a number of times, was about the betting concept, the which was a yeah, key yeah, concept yeah. Yeah, from the big short. And it often raises eyebrows, uh, the idea of betting against or shorting the banks, which is funny. They say it so casually and honestly, you're like, what does that mean? Does the bank become smaller? <laughs> but essentially, some of our main characters made massive profits because they anticipated the housing markets collapse. And the part that confused me was that there was a, essentially that's quite like two teams. One of them that thought that the, uh, that the housing market was going to do really well. The other one that they saw the crisis coming. And the ones that saw the crisis coming, they kept talking about a shorting, shorting, shorting. And in my mind, I kind of made sense of what that meant. So I knew that they were betting against the growth of the market. However, in my mind, I was thinking, this is not like a betting company. You can't just go in and say, okay, I'm going to vote against Arsenal winning the game or, you know, I'm going to vote against the the bank growing over, over the next two to three years or whatever. So it, it, it made it really confusing in my head. And I think anyone that reads the book or perhaps watches the movie, uh, which I highly recommend, could be confused. So they used the, the financial instrument called credit default swaps, which in simple terms were insurance policies. And they were betting that certain investments like the subprime mortgages that we talked about. So let's not forget the triple sandwich shit that I was talking about would fail. And if they did, the insurance company would then pay out and they would profit. The triple shit sandwich. <laughs> it's a bit like taking out an insurance policy on a house you think is going to burn down. And if it does, you collect the insurance money. However, if the house doesn't burn down, you've just wasted money on premiums. In the big short, the housing market 
the housing market, sorry, was the metaphorical house. And also that house was covered in gasoline and the people were smoking next to it and they could see it from the outside. So it, it's crazy, like, you know, to think back to what we discussed the whole of t- this episode today, we, we're looking at the 2008 crisis and we're thinking about Dave walking into a bank, hoping that uh, he had some really secured way forward on uh, how to to live the rest of his days in a way. And people have invested their money in this housing market. People have invested their money in this burning house where there were players above it, some of it betting against it burning down and some of them betting for burning it down. And the fact of the matter is that, yes, there were some people that managed to foresee the burning down of the house. And many of us didn't believe them, but they also quite selfishly made a profit out of it, which probably I would have done too, to be fair. But what I'm trying to get to here is that although we have people that managed to foresee it and uh, calculate the market, they still didn't do anything that would have saved the people which is a bit of a shame. And then we ended up with hundreds of thousands of people losing jobs, hundreds of thousands of people losing their savings and uh, ended up in quite a sticky situation, probably for a few years that affected many of us. I know from a personal perspective, uh, I guess we were, my, my parents were quite unlucky that they had invested kind of their life savings in a way in, uh, in buying a house in Italy and they purchased the house at the peak of the 2007 market. Mm. Now that property never went back to the purchase price. And now we are what, 2023 from 2007, that property never went back to the original price. So, you know, they, they, they are happy after all, cause they got a home, they've got a place that they can call home most importantly. But if you look at it from a financial perspective, they, they've lost a ton of money because there was, for lack of better definitions, very, very greedy people that were sandwiching, selling sandwiches that uh, were nothing better than uh, than a shit sandwich. Sounds like a disgusting sandwich to me. <laughs> and, and I hope you listeners have enjoyed the taste of that sandwich. It's been a whirlwind of discussion today. And uh, as, as we can tell, the past does hold lessons and the future will always have uncertainties. But through understanding and education, we can hope to navigate these complexities. So I'm just going to say thank you for joining us on this journey today. It's been another Needle Movers episode. Absolutely, Mark. And uh, remember, folks, knowledge is the tool, but wisdom is the craft. Stay curious, stay informed. Until next time. Adios. Adios.